0: Singing Living Hope, I was thinking that'd be a great name for a church. You know that is our name, right? Okay. All right. A little concern there for a moment. Um, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians in a moment here, but there is something I want to say up front. Um, recently, um, some of you may have received an email that appeared to be from me. Okay. It had, a, it had a tone of urgency and secrecy to it, asking for your confidential response without any phone calls. Flag right there. Listen, I would never ask for something in secret, especially through an email. All right? It is it's spam. It's meant to cause you harm, not good. And church, I think we're going to see more of this. So be alert to these kinds of emails and others like it from me or from others in the church community, okay? We need to be vigilant. We need to be watchful. Don't believe everything you see there. It didn't really sound like me when I read it because people sent it to me a lot yesterday, Um, but I would never ask of anything from you in secret. It was bogus. All right. With that said, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians in a moment. Let me share with you this story. It's of an elderly woman, an elderly woman who visited a local country church. And as she walked into the church, she was greeted by a friendly usher at the door who kindly helped her up the flight of steps. And then he asked, the usher asked her, where would you like to sit? And she answered, the front row, please. And the usher said, yeah, you really don't want to do that. The pastor is, is really boring. <laughs> he might put you to sleep. And then the woman asked, well, do you, know, do you know who I am? No, said the usher. And she said, I'm the pastor's mother. And then the usher said, well, do you know who I am? No, the woman answered, good. And the usher replied and quickly walked away. Now, of course, that would never happen here. It was, you know, right from the beginning. It's not going to be a front row that anybody's going to ask to sit in other than a couple. But, you know, that question, do you know who I am, is a good one. Who are we? What is our identity wrapped up in? And I expand that question to us as a church. Who are we as a church? See, when some people think church, they think building. A man was answering questions for a national poll, and when asked for his church preference, he responded red brick. Well, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a building. What do people think of when we say, you know what? I go to Living Hope. It used to be Evangelical Baptist Church, but I go to that church. and, and, And they go, oh, that's the old Catholic Church. Or... Oh, that's the building that looks like a diaper. I don't happen to think so but some do. What do we want to be known for? I'm told there's a large sign outside of a town in South Dakota that says home of 30,000 friendly people and a few sore heads. (laughs) Mostly friendly with a few sore heads probably isn't what we want to be known for. But churches can be known for all sorts of things, right? They can be known for, oh, that's a church for, for older people, or, or, that's church, uh, for or, or that's a church is great for families, or that's a church is great if you like a fog machine. Churches can be known for their worship style, traditional, blended, contemporary, hipster. Whatever it might be. Some churches are known for their programs. Or they have a great children's program. Or they have a great reaching out to the youth or to the homeless. What are we known for? If you tell someone where you go to church, what is their reaction? What do we want to be known for at Living Hope? Now listen to what the Thessalonica church was known for. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8. It will be on the screen for you. It says, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but now get this. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. That's an incredible statement. And just before that verse, in verse 7, Paul says that this church became a model for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Here, an entire church is given as an example for other churches. And what's really remarkable about this is that the Thessalonica church is a very young church. Paul says uh, this about them uh, six months, maybe a year, after he established the church, as we looked at last week in Acts chapter 17. And if you weren't with us last week, we looked at the events, the story behind the writing of 1 Thessalonians, which we're going to be diving into over the next few months on on the theme of vital signs. Vital signs. And so if you're not there in your Bibles, turn to me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're not sure where that is, just kind of go to the New Testament, go to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, keep going, you'll get to Thessalonians. If you get to Hebrews, too far, take a left, come back. Now, as you turn there, I do want to remind you of what's recorded for us in Acts 17 that we spent some time on last week of the two events that led to the birth of this church. So, Paul and his team... Landed in the city of Thessalonica, the capital, by the way, of Macedonia. And Paul reasoned with the people from scriptures that Jesus fit the profile of the coming Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. And some of the Jews, as we saw last week, were persuaded. They believed the message, as did some God-fearing Greeks and some prominent women. It was a handful, that handful of people that the church in Thessalonica was established. But the birth of this church also led to a mob scene instigated by some Jews who were filled with jealousy over Paul's success at winning over the Gentiles and winning over some Jews with the gospel of this Jesus being the long-anticipated Messiah. And they didn't care for that too much. And so Paul and his his team, they were forced to uh, abruptly leave the city And after some time had passed, Paul is in Corinth. He becomes concerned about the health of this church. He's wondering, I wonder if the persecution going on is going to be too much for these new believers. Um, Had they forsaken Christ when their faith was under fire? So Paul wanted to know how they were holding up. So he sends Timothy, who was with them, he sends Timothy to go check in on this church and Thessalonica. And so Timothy visits this church in Thessalonica, and then he returns to Paul in Corinth, and he gives an update on the church. And based on that report from Timothy, Paul sits down, and he writes to them, and what we have is the first letter to the Thessalonians. Actually, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it tells us that it was written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, can you imagine this church's excitement to hear from these three guys? I mean, to know that, that they were on their minds, what a shot in the arm. And I mentioned last week the importance of letting others know We're thinking of them. And nowadays, it doesn't require sitting down and writing a long letter and dropping that in the mail, though that wouldn't be a bad thing to return to that. It's really a lost art of writing notes and writing letters. But we have the benefit, even though we see the downside of technology, we have the benefit of technology and we can send that text to someone or that email that simply says, you're on my mind, thinking of you. Praying for you as you go for some lab work or or praying for you as you go to that job interview or praying for you as as you deal with that issue with your child or or just I'm thinking of you as you're just trying to do life. Ah, Do we need to do that to someone? I encourage you to do that. So this letter from the heart of Paul and his associates is a long thinking of you. And then after a typical greeting there, the rest of verse 1, Paul says in verse 2 now, verse 2, we always thank God for all of you. (laughs) That grabbed me. All of you, he says. Even the sore heads? (laughs) Even Even the quirky ones? No, we always thank God for all of you, he says. Now, he's thanking God. Now listen, he isn't setting them up for some zinger here. You know, I'm really thankful for you, but it's what we often do. i really think, what you, but let me tell you this. Boom, they nail you. That's not what he's doing. Because he adds, mentioning you in our prayers. Mentioning you in our prayers. Now, it's common for Paul and his letters to begin with thanks. You'll see that often. What's different, though, about this letter from the many others that Paul wrote is that this Thanksgiving... Uh, continues and is expanded upon for nearly two more chapters. Thanksgiving doesn't come to a full stop until you get to chapter 4, in which Paul then addresses some issues he's already spoken to them about. But notice, Paul is genuinely thankful for them. I ask you, do you regularly give thanks for others? There was this man who had the persistent habit of returning thanks after he ate his meal, after he ate his meal. As he left the table, he invariably said, I thank God for a good dinner. Well, when asked why he didn't pray prior to eating, he replied, well, my way is to be sure of a thing before I return thanks for it. (laughs) Well, is that the only time we give thanks? Are we only thankful for others after they do something for us? Here's a challenge. Maybe you have a prayer list. Maybe you have certain people you pray for. On that prayer list, or maybe you need to add some other names. I want you to, to just challenge you with this. Write down some names. And then as you pray for them, list one thing you can give thanks for. One thing you can give thanks for next to that, name, that person's name. In some cases, I mean, it might not be easy. We might really struggle to think of something. I mean, don't be that person who makes it difficult for others to be thankful for you, right? Live so that others are thankful for you. That's kind of the other side of this. But Paul here, he specifically mentions three qualities about them that he remembers them for. I think that's another lesson for us as we think about thanksgiving. We can follow his example. Do we? Do this enough. Give s- specifics as to what we're thankful for. And we voice that. Or do we wait until someone's eulogy to express our thanks? Paul is thankful for this church. They, they, were, they were a healthy church. Not a perfect church. Uh-uh. Not a perfect church. For that doesn't exist. I mean, you know the saying. If you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll just ruin it. Right? But their vital signs were good. It's a church that shows remarkable signs of life. We might say this: a church with the right stuff. What stuff? All right. Here's the main thing we're looking at this morning. It's verse 3. That was all introductory. <laughs> I know. Well, here's the main thing right here, verse 3. I want us to see this. Here's the right stuff they had. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this triad of faith, love, and hope is seen in other places in Scripture. You probably know that. John Calvin called these three virtues a brief definition of true Christianity. A brief definition of true Christianity is that what defines you? Faith, love, hope. Because as a Christian, we should have those virtues. All right, let's look at these more closely as we, as we, as we zero in, unpack uh, verse three here. First of all, a faith that works. A faith that works. Now, as Paul here mentions their faith that works, we need to think precisely as to the meaning of this. Okay, we need, to, we need to be on target with this. It'd be wrong to conclude that Paul is speaking of good works as a requirement for heaven. It's not what he's saying. Because our salvation is entirely on the basis of Christ's work on the cross for us. That, that's to be received by faith. Work of faith here should not be taken as works, we must do in order to earn our salvation. Scripture is clear that we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and not of our works. Any hope in heaven based on good works outweighing our bad works offers no assurance at all. That's how some people live. I just hope I get to the end. My goods outweigh my bad. Well, I wonder, I would ask that person, what's good enough? Is 51% good enough? Or is 75% the passing grade? And since God is 100% holy and perfect, would 98% of being good even be good enough if that were even possible? The singular reason. Our good deeds can never be good enough. is because at the core of our being, we have sinned against a holy God who demands payment for that sin. John Orberg tells the time when he and his wife bought their first nice piece of furniture. It was a pink sofa, but for that kind of money, it was called a mauve sofa. (laughs) And Orberg then tells the story. He said, we had very small children in those days and does anybody want to guess what was the number one rule in our house from that day on? Don't sit on the mob sofa. Don't play near the mob sofa. Don't eat around the mob sofa. Don't touch the mob sofa. Don't breathe on the mob sofa. Don't think about the mob sofa. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit, but on the sofa, the mob sofa, you may not sit for on that day you do, you will surely die. <laughs> and then one day came the Fall. There appeared to be on the mob sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. He says, so my wife assembled our three children to look at the stain on the sofa. He said, children, do you see that? That's a stain. That's a red stain. That's a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not for all eternity. And do you know how long eternity is, children? Eternity is how long we're all going to sit here until one of you tells me which one of you put the red jelly stain on the mob sofa. (laughs) It was dead silence, Orberg says, for the longest time. None of them would confess putting the stain on the sofa. He says, I knew that none of them would confess putting the stain on the sofa because, in fact, I was the one who put the stain on the sofa. (laughs) And he says, I wasn't saying nothing, not a word. Orberg turns from that to say, here's the truth about us. We have all stained the sofa. We have all stained the sofa we have all sinned against the Holy God. All of us in this room. Do you know you can't save yourself? Is your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, the finished work on the cross, I mean, is that what you're banking on for your salvation? Or is it good deeds, bad deeds, hope it works out. And if you've done that and you're here this morning, yeah, yeah, and that's where my faith is. That's what I'm trusting in. There ought to be something to show for it. In the book of James, it's clear that true faith in Christ is evident by the good works that's produced through us and in our lives. See, a vital sign of life is a faith that works. A faith that doesn't work, doesn't manifest itself in doing good, James says, is what? A dead faith. Check your vital sign. How is there evidence in your life of true faith? Are we known for a faith that expresses itself in action? And this church was. We aren't told as to the specifics of the work that flowed out their faith, though we will get a hint of that as we go through this, this, this letter. But the word for work here suggests manual labor. That these good works, they might be uh, gifts to the poor, they might be checking in on the sick, it might be opening up their homes to others, it might be comforting those who are hurting or, or, or just helping the afflicted. But whatever the specific acts might have been, it suggests by the nature of what the word means, it is, is meeting the practical needs of others. It's rolling up your sleeves and, and going to work. That's what it's saying. It's a faith that works. How is faith? than seen in my life. How's just seen in your life? was just seen in us as a church? That's a sign of life. Second sign of life, it's a love that labors. A love that labors. You might have heard of the phrase, labor of love. It commonly refers to work that a person does because they're passionate about it, not because they make any money from it. There's no reward in it. A grandparent, for example, might make something for their grandkid, not because they expect anything in return, but because they love their grandchild. It was a labor of love. That's a phrase we've adopted in our day. This is just a task done for pleasure, not reward. That common phrase puts the emphasis on the result of love. Not the meaning here. I don't want us to be confused. The meaning here puts the emphasis on the cost of, the, of our love. Cost of our love. That it's a strenuous, exhausting labor. It's a love for the benefit of others. The word labor is an arduous, it means an arduous wearing toil that involves sweat and fatigue. As Paul thinks of this church, he thinks sweat. It's love directed to the other members of the Christian community. There's a love that also extended to unbelievers. Now again, the specifics of the acts of love are not mentioned here, though we'll have hints of it throughout this letter. But any self-sacrificing type of labor for the benefit of others would be included in our labor of love. But I want us to see this. Church, love is heavy lifting. It, love, is, love is hard work. Love is a is a labor sometimes. It isn't just this grin and bear it kind of thing. I need to work at it. It takes effort. Why does it take effort? Because you aren't always lovable. <laughs> you have annoying traits. You do. And so do I. No amen there. But it's true. It is a work to love you. It is a work to love me. It is a work to love each other. It is. God isn't looking for us to just be tolerant of each other. Now, I can't stand you, but I'm stuck with you kind of attitude. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, if you build your identity on what Jesus did for you, you become something far better than tolerant You'll be able to disagree honestly and sharply with people and yet do so without the slightest bit of will, without the slightest need to exercise power in those relationships, without the slightest bit of superiority. We'll be able to disagree with all love, respect, deference, and humility. That's it. So I pause there and I, how hard, how hard are you working at love? What's it costing you? to love others. What's it costing me? Let's be known for love that labors. That's a sign of life, of health. Faith that works, a love that labors. Thirdly, it's a hope that endures. A hope that endures. The third phrase in the NIV says it this way, your endurance inspired by hope. What is hope? Well, hope isn't this wishful thinking. You know, I hope things turn out better. I hope I get that job. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I make the team. I hope I pass that test. Reminds me of a young boy. After coming to school for the day, he went home, and he said his nightly prayers. And he said, Please, Lord, make Boulder the capital of Colorado. His mother asked, Why did you ask to make Boulder the capital of Colorado? And the boy replied, Because that's what I put down on my test today doesn't matter how much you hope that to happen. It's not going to change it. That's just wishful thinking. (laughs) Bringing God into that one. Hope isn't willing something to happen. What kind of hope endures trying times? The daily grind. The moments in life that don't make sense. What, What kind of hope endures when all is not going so well in your life? Well, the source of this endurance has to go beyond Some inner resolve or willing ourselves to do it, we need something more sustainable than that. It's hope in what? Well, as we're going to see as we go throughout our time in this letter, our hope is anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ and the expectation of his return. Every single chapter in this letter ends with a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ, every single chapter. See, it's an endurance inspired by hope. Not not hope that things will get better. It's not hoping simply for a change in government. It's not hope in in some economic turnaround. Hoping the coming of Jesus when all wrongs will be made right, when, when we will be delivered from the suffering and the wrath to come. It's our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Lord. So what is the hope that endures time and situations and and events of this life? It's a certainty that something better awaits us. It's a certainty that what God has begun in us, he'll bring to completion. It's a certainty that all the hard stuff will be worth it in the end. It's an absolute certainty about a future based on Christ's resurrection, that all the hard work because of our faith in Christ and our love for others will be brought to ultimate consummation at Jesus' coming. This church had a hope that encouraged them to continue even in the face of difficulty. Now listen, this church doesn't like it, they didn't have it easy either. They were, they were being afflicted. They were being beaten, they were being persecuted, but their hope in Jesus Christ gave them the power to endure and persevere when perhaps everything inside of them wanted to quit. I mean, do you know that feeling? I'm done with this. You may have come in this room this morning with that kind of, "I want to quit!" You may be at a, a vocational or, or marital or moral or physical quitting point right now. You may be at that place where you're even ready to quit on God. I understand. I do. There are things I wish I stayed with rather than quit. Here's something I think we all can agree to. It is easier to quit than to endure. It's easier to quit than to endure. It is easier to walk out on a conflict rather than work through it. It's easier to switch jobs. It's easier to get another spouse, numb the pain, run away, than to stay with it. It is easier to stay home on a Sunday morning rather than get everybody ready for church. (laughs) Stories told of a man who did not really want to go to church one Sunday morning. He was so obstinate about not going that he just locked himself in his room, on his bed, and his wife was gently trying to reason with him why he should go to church. She said, honey, you really need to go to church. Why should I? He asked. She replied, well, I have three reasons why you need to go. Number one, you know that you should. Number two, you'll feel better if you go. And number three, you're the pastor. (laughs) Okay. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Honestly, I do like you and I'm glad to be here. All right. But maybe you sometimes feel like that pastor. Maybe you sometimes feel the ambivalence about church as that story represents. And I think a lot of people like to say, you know, you know, I like Jesus. I'm just not sure about the church. Well, we're kind of back to it takes work to love the church. But listen, if our hope is in the church It is misplaced hope. It's misplaced hope. You need to catch a glimpse of the view from the top, that it will be worth it. Listen, living hope, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. One night at dinner, a man who had spent many summers in Maine, he fascinated his companions by telling of his experiences in a little town that was called Flagstaff. The town Flagstaff was to be flooded as part of a a large lake for which a dam was being built. And and the months before it was to be flooded, all improvements and repairs of the whole town were stopped, of course. I mean, what's the use of painting a house if, if if, if it was going to be covered with water in six months? Why repair anything when the whole village is going to be wiped out? And so week by week, and the whole town became more and more shabby, more gone to seed, more wretched. The point, where there's no hope in the future, there's no power in the present. Where there's no hope in the future, there's no power in the present. How different it should be for God's people. We ought to have a faith that works. We ought to have a love that labors. Why? Because we have a hope that should empower us to endure to the end. I like how Max Lucado put it. He said, nothing puts power in the journey like a vision of the mountaintop. Don't lose sight of the mountaintop. Imagine the view from the top. We can make it, church. Whatever you're going through right now, you can make it because of your hope. and Endurance. C.S. Lewis aptly observed, if you read history, You'll find the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. A sign of life is a hope that endures. Endurance is the ability to remain steadfast and persevere in the face of suffering, knowing that all is well, that our God, believe it or not, but believe it, he has everything under control. Faith, love, love, hope. Those are things worthy of thanks. G.K. Beale says it this way, says, too often churches today tend to give thanks only for visible and quantifiable realities, such as a new building, an increase in membership, and an increase in giving. Paul gives thanks for more unquantifiable realities, such as faith, love, and hope, which are needed to inspire good works on the visible level. It's saying these virtues here should be observed in our lives. The Thessalonica church had the right stuff and was known for working, laboring, and, and enduring. That was their identity. And as we see as we go through this letter, they are a model church. Not perfect, but a model church. It's as if Paul, as he goes to the other churches and visits them, they may ask, Him, how are we doing, Paul? He might say to them, come with me to Thessalonica. I want you to see they're imperfect people, but let me show you a faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope that endures, because those are signs of life. Is that what we're known for? See, it can't be this. Well, you know, deep down, I'm a Christian. I mean, it's so far down deep, you can't even see it. It's not it's just between me and God. There's nothing out. No. Wrong. Not biblical. Do others see your faith by your good deeds? Do others see a costly love? Do, do they ask about the hope that lies within you? Christian virtues are seen by others, Faith, love, and hope. Are we known for that? Because every church would be known for something. When others see this church, they would peek inside or they see us out in the community. When others peek into your life, what do they find? Back 10 years ago, as far as I know, it's a true story. Great Britain's Food Standards Agency closed a slaughterhouse in a processing plant after investigators found horse carcasses had been used to make beef burgers and kebabs sold in Britain. A month later, Swedish giant IKEA was drawn into the food labeling scandal as authorities said they had detected horse meat and frozen meatballs labeled as beef and pork and sold in 13 countries across the continent. Shortly after the European horse meat scandal broke, the story took an unexpected twist. When officials in Iceland heard about horse meat getting into beef products, they decided to run tests to ensure the same thing wasn't happening in Iceland. So, Icelandic meat inspectors didn't find any horse meat. Good news. But one brand of locally produced beef pie left it stumped. It contained beef pie, it contained no meat at all. It appeared to be some kind of vegetable product, beef pie. One of the lead inspectors said, that was the peculiar thing. It was labeled as beef pie, so shouldn't it be beef pie? And I thought, if it's labeled a Christian church, shouldn't we find Christian virtues? Are we in the church with the right stuff? A faith that works, a love that labors, a hope that endures. When others look at living hope, what do they find? When others look at your life, call yourself Christian, what do they find? What do they find? Let's pray. God, thank you for this letter. It's exciting to work through this together. And I just pray, God, that as we do, we don't uh, try and measure this up as if this was a perfect church and say, well, forget it. I can never meet that one. But rather, I pray, God, that we would um, allow you to check our vital signs. That we allow you to check us as a church yes but since a church is made up of people to check each one of us Lord is there life in us is there life in us God I just pray that even from this morning we just uh, take away this thought of our hope is in you and certain um, foundation is Jesus Christ and as, as you build us up on that foundation it's a firm one nothing can knock it down I pray, God, that we'd we'd, we'd get excited about that and be cooperative with what you want to do in our lives as a church and as individuals who make up that church. All for your glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.